Welcome back to the Wisdom Archiver. Today I'm joined by my cousin Justin as my co-host. He is a serial entrepreneur, tech investor, and podcaster. You can find his podcast under the Quest with Justin Khan. He co-founded Justin TV, Twitch TV, and Atrium. Our special guest in this episode is our uncle, Hadley Lim. He was an engineer at Boeing where he helped design the 757, 767, and the 777. If you have flown quite a bit before, you probably have been on at least one of these planes. All right, welcome to the Wisdom Archiver, guys. Um, Uncle Hadley. Hi, Nayeto. Hey, how's Hi, it Justin. going? This is Uncle Hadley. Can yeah. you share a bit about yourself and how you started on your journey? Yes. Uh, the background is my, my father and mother has got seven children mm. in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. And then... They all migrated to China, all seven of them, plus my, mm. my parents. So that's nine of them all migrated to China. And then all 11 of them migrated to Hong Kong. Then from Hong Kong, I was born. And then from there, we all migrated to Malaysia. Hong Kong is very, very crowded. It's so crowded. They think that Malaysia has the opportunity to grow because it's more like wide open country. You can go do mm. this, you can build that. There's a lot of potential to be gotten, so to speak. Because in Hong Kong, it's very, very competitive. I remember mm. when I grew up in Hong Kong, uh, when I go to school at age five, I'm learning a lot of stuff. I'm learning how to read and write Chinese. I'm learning English. I'm learning, wow. A little kid like me can learn so much at <laughs> such an early age, and that is very, very competitive. So that value was what, what you took away from yes, Asia before moving? Yes, that is engraved in me by parents and my siblings. So mm. with that um, character, we do really well in America because America is a land of opportunity. The, the major switch is from... China to Hong Kong, yes, because right. we are going from a Chinese culture, which is communist, mm. to a British colony. I learned to be more adaptable. I think it um, trained me to be flexible. It makes you more open-minded because every culture is so different. What is mm. right in one culture might not be right in another culture. So now I have to accept both culture, what is right or wrong. And then I've learned the difference in the culture and I have to do different things. For example, like, like what was that like? Everything is different. What you say in one culture might not be appropriate in another culture. For example, mm. if, if somebody's a little bit chubby, you say, oh, you're fat in, in Malaysia. It's okay. Okay, I'm fat. I'm happy. Yeah, so, so that's fine. <laughs> But if you say something to somebody in America, oh, you're fat. I mean, they take it very offensively. So you can't say yeah. that. So, so that's the culture difference. Even though you don't mean to hurt them, you say, oh, I just acknowledge that you during the pandemic, you eat a little bit more than you need to. 20 years ago, when I yes. went to school in the US, everything was already so much more PC. It's even more prevalent today, right? It could yeah. be good or bad depending on the situation itself. Yeah. Now, if I really care for somebody, something needs to be said because otherwise, yeah. you know, you can't do anything. To be politically correct, 
it's almost like having your hands tight when you're trying to help someone. But this is just a culture thing. I treat mm. different people differently. The mm. people that's very, very close to me, I can mm. say things a little bit more freely and they can understand me and they don't get very offended. I, I, I meant what I say. So mm. if you want to be honest, sometimes they're not all pretty. So people that is not very close to me, I kind of have to be a little more careful. And that doesn't mean if they're not close today, they won't be close to me tomorrow. It could right. change. So I will have to make the decision uh, from case mm. to case, not one size fit all. <laughs> have you ever experienced any kind of like uh, discrimination or things like that, you know, as, as an yes. Asian? Because... And, you know, during the time you grew up or even today, yeah. it's even more, it's even crazier. I keep hearing crazy stories, right? Yeah. Yes. I, I, discrimination is always there, depending on the mm. degree, depending on the situation, depending on this, depending on that. I, I grew up with it and I'm so used to it, so accustomed to it. I adjust myself accordingly. When I was mm. growing up in um, Malaysia, Hmm. They call me by my nickname, which is a Chinese from Hong Kong in their language, in Malaysian language. <laughs> they don't mean to be rude or impolite, but that's how they know me as. And they treat me like a foreigner all the time. But, you know, hmm. being treated like a foreigner has a little bit of advantage or disadvantage, however you want to look at it. The advantage is you are, you are like almost like somebody special. So mm. you're always being looked upon. People always keep an eye on you because you're a foreigner from a, a different country. So they're curious about you. They want to know more about you and they want to keep an eye on you. So that means I have to keep my gut up at all times. Otherwise, it could be very embarrassing. So that put me at an advantage. If I keep my gut up, up at all times, mm. I would do better automatically mm. just the way it is. so i have advantage and it could be a disadvantage if you want to look at it the other way that oh they don't want to be your friend because you're a foreigner and you are somebody outsider and stuff like that then yes that's a disadvantage but mm. i don't look at it that way i look at it like mm. i'm a privileged child i'm special mm. i'm different than the rest of them my friends that i chose to be with are also special because they can handle a foreigner from Hong Kong. How did, you, um, how did you develop that kind of thinking? Well, I think I have two choices. Mm. I can either lie down and let, me, let somebody beat me up, or I can stand above them so they can reach up and beat me because I'm way up there. I think, I, I, think I'm, I, I grew up with my brother and sister. Most of them are very, very, very intelligent. I think I just developed this kind of mentality of thinking. I have a tendency to try to make the best out of a situation. If the situation is bad, I just make it as good as I can be. It doesn't have to be, you know, smelling like rose, but it doesn't have to smell like bad stuff. So, so mm -hmm. as long as I make everything as good as I can make it, given the situation good or bad or above average, I will make it as good as it can be. And that is a good thing because that gives me a lot of opportunity, a lot of uh, 
you know, advantage overall. So the optimism in you was the one that saved you essentially, right? And I, so that's, that's something, do you think that is something nurtured a lot I by people around you? Or that's... I, I'm not sure how, what is the percentage I'm born with it. I'm not sure mm. what is the percentage I'm grew up with and how much I learned from my parents and my brother and mm. sister mm. Uh, and, the, and the, my friends around me. I'm not sure where you draw the line, but I right. have, I'm very, very logical and mm. very practical ever since I was a very, very young child. And when mm. I apply this practicality or, logical, or, or logicality, I tend to do a lot better. My mm. friends are pretty much like me. They're, they're really, really intelligent. So, well, mm. I, I don't want to brag, but yeah. there's my similar thinking, my similar character, uh, similar hard work, similar everything. So we get along really well together because we have some similarity. And being mm. in that environment itself put mm. all of us in a very, very, very good advantage, so to speak. The result shows all of them turn out very well. I don't know who put who, but we're always together. The three of us hang out all the time and we help each other mm. out whenever we can. And we grew up together for eight years. We went through that. And then after oh. that, I have to leave Malaysia for America. And mm -hmm. it was tough leaving all my friends behind. And all everything right. I know, everything I'm used to, and everything I'm accustomed to and taken for granted is no longer there. I got to start all over in America, different culture, mm. different education, different thinking, different everything. But that yeah, requires not just adaptability, but also resilience in your mind, you know, yes, it's key in a well. way that is true. Yeah. But mm. also I always know what needs to be done at all mm -hmm. times. I think that I'm reasonably responsible for myself because my parents are older, my siblings are also busy with their own, you know, venture. So I have to be kind of be independent relatively early in life. Nice. Back then when you when you were working, you were an aerospace engineer, right? So how yes. how did you begin that? How did you get interested in working for Boeing? Well, I, uh, I didn't plan on working for Boeing to start with. I just decided to go to uh, University of Washington because that's the, one of the more popular school in the area. In, I live in Seattle. So then when company science opened up, I applied for it like everybody else. Then mm -hmm. I realized that there's 2,500 students apply for computer scientists to, oh, be, to, to, okay. to be accepted. So when, yeah. I, when I heard that there's 2,500 apply, and in order for you to apply for computer science, you have to have a very, 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 very high qualification. You have to fulfill mm. all your physics. You have to fulfill your math. You have to fulfill all your engineering classes. You have to fulfill all the minimum requirements before you even get to apply for the, for, to, be, to be accepted for computer science. So I realized, I find out that there's 2,500 people who qualify. <laughs> I realized that they only accept 45 students. So I said, wow, 
I'm going to be a double E now. I'm not going to make it. <laughs> to my yeah. amaze, they, they, they accepted me. So I said, wow, I'm, I'm at least the top 45 that qualifies. Mm. And then I realized, wow, this other 45 student kind of intimidated me in a way because I can mm. talk the way they talk. But then mm. one year later, there's only 25 of us. 20 dropout for no reason. Wow. I don't know what, what the reason is. They just can't make it. They just mm. drop out. So then the following year, only 15 of us left. 10 more dropout. Wow. Okay. All right. So, so there's 15 students left spending. And out of the 15, by the end of the year, there's only 11 of us. Four more dropout during the year. So it is really, really difficult. I'm telling you. Then... Out of the 11 that is still in class, only three graduate. So knowing that there's only three students that graduate that year, I was very happy. And three everybody out of 45, had... right? Correct. And wow. then just to, to, to back up a little bit, it's actually 2,500 who qualified. And then we got 45 students that get picked out of the That's the top 45 students we're talking about. That, that conversion rate is yes. extremely low. Yes. It's almost yeah. like winning a lottery. Seriously, yeah. I'm not kidding around. And when I graduate, a lot of uh, company wants computer science because at that time in the 70s, computer science was not very popular. I mean, not, not very uh, plentiful, so to speak. Of course, mm -hmm. computer science has come a long way and everything, you need more than just simple logic and you need more than adaptability, you need a lot more than what I got way back then today. I'm lucky to be born early, I'm lucky, but even though it's so simple, it's not mm. that simple in those days. And I'll tell you a story which is very, very hard for anyone to believe. Mm. Everybody want to be a computer scientist in the 70s because that's like the dream come true kind of a topic. That's a brand new and everybody thought it was very refreshing. It's like everybody so wants when, to do AI now. <laughs> yes, yes, that's true. So the story yeah. goes, and this is, I don't know if you can verify my story, but this is my story mm. anyway. Okay. When I graduated way back then in the 70s, mm. I applied for six jobs. I get mm. accepted by all six. That's how wow. demanding computer science was. So Still then, is today, I, but not as oh, as, I, I, as that. <laughs> but out of the six, job I got mm. accepted. I chose to stay with Boeing because Boeing mm. is in Seattle. And the reason mm. I stay in Boeing is because I want to be with my parents and my mm. siblings. And then, okay. And this is quite interesting actually. Boeing always, Boeing always hire you as an associate, uh, not, not associate, let me see. They hire you as an assistant engineer. Normally, mm. when you first graduate mm. from college, they will hire you as an assistant engineer. And then when, you, when you're done assisting everybody else, then they will make you an uh, associate engineer. Mm. That means you'll be working with some engineer who has more seniority over you. So they're overlooking right. you. You're working with them, but they're kind of uh, overlooking you. Because of the salary matching, 
I mm-hmm. end up coming in as a full engineer. So that really wow. put me at a very, very, very good position at that time. <laughs> so, you were very confident that you can deliver? Well, I'm very confident in my knowledge because mm-hmm. I'm trained in a different manner. Mm-hmm. Most of these engineers that I'm working with who have more seniority over me are coming from math degree, coming from mm-hmm. double E degree, coming from mm-hmm. some kind of engineering degree or somewhere along the line they get they work there long enough, they become engineer mm. and they start doing what I do. I'm actually high in to do exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. The problem, the difficulties I have is always proving myself to all the engineer who has more seniority over me and who is probably not happy about the way I do things. So I have to explain mm. to them, I have to prove it to them that my way is better. And mm. they always say this to me. This is something I can never forget. Mm. This is not how we do things. This is not how we do things here. Mm. <laughs> My response yeah. is, that's why you hire me. Because mm-hmm. you're not doing things the way I do. That's why you hire me to do things the way I do. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't quite like it, but they don't have to respond to that response. Because that response doesn't require... A response mm. because I'm doing what I do. You can the ultimate comeback. What, <laughs> yeah, they, they cannot tell me what to do because yeah. I don't work for you. I work with you. Yeah, that's a big difference. So I'm so lucky in the sense. Mm. If I were high in as an assistant, I'll be helping them making coffee and, yeah. and uh, whatever they want me to do, which is really really horrible actually. And then yeah. if I'm an associate engineer, then I will have to work with them and do what they tell me to do. I'm lucky I don't have to go through that. Can you share a bit about in designing the three airplanes that you're very much proud of? The 757, 767, 777? Okay. Yes. Yes. I'll give an insight of that. I was being hired by uh, uh, Boeing to do especially the 757 and 767. Those are like the cutting cutting edge technology way back then. This is in the 70s now. Um, They want to make it cheaper to fly, uh, quieter to fly, and longer range to fly. They want to make everything better than the last plane they have. So they hired me to build this uh, computer system to test airplane, design airplane, and do all this stuff. So that's my first two. the last one is very interesting because it's a 777. It's everything we know about airplane. You want to fly higher, longer, cheaper, just like before, but in a more, in a more extreme manner. And that's mm-hmm. a 777. And my challenge in designing all this stuff is about time. It's always about time. Time equate to money. So mm. I always tell my boss, this is my boss, in a software design, you can do almost anything you want. You, you can make it go this way or that way, what, whatever way you want to do, it can be done always. So I told my boss, um, if you give me enough time and we have enough budget to do anything you want, we can make it happen. Mm. So we are always struggling with budget. Budget is you know, time basically. So anyway, it's 
very interesting at that time, but my challenge is always trying to do things my way. And that's what, what the challenge is. Yeah, I cannot do things their way because I'm not trained hmm. that way. <laughs> so if you say computer science is advantages, disadvantages, it depends on how you look at it. If hmm. you throw away everything you learn and do things their way, then computer science is a disadvantage. You have learned nothing about computer science. And mm. if you can just do things your way and ignore what everybody does, then computer science is definitely putting you at a very high advantage. Everything, everything in life can be advantage or disadvantage depending on how it turns out and how you apply it to the, the real life. So, so computer science was uh, yeah. hot then, it was hot today, it was hot always, it will, hot be, it will always be, it will <laughs> even be hot tomorrow. It will always be. Yes. Especially yeah. if you want to be. If you want to be the best of the best, it is mm. always going to be difficult. Nothing is easy. If you want to be a mediocre, everything is so easy. You just sit there and, and, and yeah, that 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 <laughs> that kind of like mental toughness is is not common among people. Actually, this is uh, usually you always hear this among like entrepreneurs um, because they have to suffer through it and everything. But you're like an intrapreneur essentially, right? Within the, yes. within the organization, you push through barriers and innovate for the company and, and, and find new ways of doing things, which is very entrepreneurial. I, I <laughs> yeah. think I just created my own silver platter, mm-hmm. so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, way back then, we are cutting edge. And mm. when you hire me to come in to design computer system for you, Mm. I feel that I can do almost anything you want because I have mm. that ability. So the difficulty part and the challenge part is miscommunication between departments. Mm. I think we have to have lots and lots and lots of meetings and we talk about things and are constantly revising. How I, did you navigate way, the politics as well, by the way, on that? Well, because I'm a, you, I, yeah. I'm a people person. I, I, I mm. learn... To, to treat different people differently. Mm. And I have, I have a lot to thank for my brother and sister because I watched them. I watched how mm. they interact with their friends, how they interact with their uh, co-worker or not so much mm. co-worker, but their, their uh, student colleagues and stuff. Mm. So I, I learned to watch how they do things. And mm. in my family, a failure is frowned upon. They don't fail very often. Mm. So I, I was scared that if I fail, then they will frown on me and I will be very mm. miserable. So I, mm. I, I have to push myself a little bit more so that I am more acceptable by them. Like mm. when I applied for University of Washington, I didn't mm. know I'm supposed to find a backup college. I didn't know mm. that. I didn't know that University of Washington can reject me and not, not accept me. I didn't know that. Mm. Because for them to go there so easily, and I mean, them meaning my brother and sister, I was thinking that, oh, it's very easy to get in because everybody got in anyway. So, so mm. that's exactly my mentality. I'm a little bit naive, but it puts me in a very, very good position because by not knowing too much of the unnecessary stuff, I don't need to know. I can focus on the more 
critical stuff that I need to know. Mm. Yeah. Was there any kind of like uh, failure during like your time in Boeing? You know, designing airplane, um, it's always super, super difficult as it, well, as you it, said it, before. It's a right? challenge. I guess like what I meant by failure, it's probably like how Boeing is suffering right now with the 737. You never, any no. of your airplane designs was never having that no. kind of major issues, right? Yeah. No, no. Most of our design are very, very uh, solid because we, mm. don't, we don't release anything until we know we, we are proven to be, to be mm. sure things. We, mm. we don't jump the gun, in other words. We, we are very, I would say in the old days, we are more safer. We have more time mm. to, to iron out all the problem before we put it out there. Yeah, but innovation takes a lot slower too then, right? Because like, I remember, I remember airplanes didn't change much until like, like, you know, I mean, even, even until, (laughs) until the, the, this, this decade essentially, right? Like design, the functionality, it seems like, uh, the innovation is stagnant or something. Yes. Yes. I think we have, okay. In the old days, Boeing has the 727 and the mm. 737 and the 747. They have those already. Mm. And they have done everything right for those planes. And then mm. they say, well, it would be nice if you have a 767, which can do a, a haul a lot more people at one time. Fly mm. uh, by wire. Uh, yes, and then cheaper to fly, cheaper to run it, cheaper to own yeah. it, and everything like that. So he said, well, let's do the 767. But since we're mm. doing a 67, why not make a 57 who can fly longer range mm-hmm. for different purposes. One is like shuttle going back and forth, which is a 767. Mm-hmm. And the 757 is more like a, the intercontinental going from one country to another or longer range. And mm-hmm. then so we did that too. And then we, everything is done. We iron out all the problems. We got it all taken care of. Mm-hmm. Then we say, how about if we can fly it faster, cheaper, Quieter and longer. and longer. So yeah. that's why we came out with a 777. A 777 is a derivation of everything we know about the 757 and 767, which wow. will make it better. That's all. So there's nothing major, major cutting edge mm. other than, hey, that was cutting edge at that time anyway. Mm. So Even until today, 777 still continue to yes. impress. It is right? a very with- solid aeroplane it's a solid aeroplane five seven right. six seven 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 are all three very, very solid as of today no regrets mm. yeah you shared about uh the time when you created the early quote-unquote ai right to help the yes. the airplane land can you share a bit about that my main my interest in in ai but my uh, uh thesis is in a database so we do a lot of uh, data uh, collection, analyzing data, and try to make the airplane more uh, advanced. We write software. We write software to collect data. We write software to analyze data. We write software to, to see the, the result of our uh, goal, whatever we, we decide to put in the design. We have to collect the information to see if it's feasible one way or another. What, what was the 
tech like back then or the software it, it must have been it's very you know, primitive it's yeah very, really, very, really very primitive. Today. uh yes it's day and night difference we have come a long long way from in the 70s so uh i i designed in assembly language meaning it's almost like machine language i have to sing and write code just like the machine. I just think like how the machine works and and design our software based on that. Today, everything is very, very advanced. Yeah, we have come a long way from the 70s. To, to those who have never, or that has never seen what the machine looked like or the output looked like, well, what was it like? I, it, I remember like you shared it. to me, it was like long list of paper with dots, right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, that too. That too. But we, yeah, uh, our, our computers are like a building. We have air conditioning coming in from the from the ground just to cool the system out because it's so hot. We have a room that is very very cold. So if I go into the room, I have to basically put on my uh, jacket to to keep myself warm. So, so it, it's very very primitive. The machine is huge. Uh, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but you're, you're reading, you're reading punch card, you're reading ticket tape, you're reading uh, dumps, you're reading all kinds of stuff. So it's very, very different than today. Oh, that's amazing. So with that basic technology, you were able to program autopilot and all the software assistance, right? Which is we, we feel, still in yeah. use today. Uh, yes. Yes. The, the, the system we design is still in use today. That's correct. Uh, we replace our computer system every six years, five to six years. It takes about two to three years to build a system for it to be functioning and then running. When we're done with one system, we start building the second system, more advanced and newer technology, faster and better. And during my 19 years, we have replaced about four different systems. And each one of them is significantly better than the previous one. I think the difference between when I was designing airplanes for Boeing versus after retiring, people are coming in to, to design newer plane and better plane. The difference is that we used to take a little bit more time going through a simpler system than today. We stress on quality and try to get things done right and not rush everything in. I think today, the problem is that it's about the profit margin. So they have to push it a little bit more, a little bit more, take a little bit more risk. And sometimes that doesn't always work out. But like we are in a the yeah. approach that uh, SpaceX does, for example, like where they do it iteratively, it clearly works for them, right? So why can't Boeing kind of adopt that, uh, that kind of approach? Uh, Boeing is a commercial uh, and they have respond to the profit margin. I think the SpaceX is a very, very innovative and probably I would say that uh, uh, the people that design SpaceX are very, very passionate about what they do. Whereas Boeing is, you know, 
we have all a lot of good engineers, but sometimes the they are not given enough time to do the job as thoroughly as it used to be. Justin, do you do you see any kind of uh, future that like SpaceX might affect the entire airspace industry? No, I mean they already are. You know, they're mm. they're. I, f- I feel like SpaceX is one of the most innovative companies in the world, and you know they're really kind of reinvigorating commercial space flight. And I wouldn't be surprised if in ten years we do have you know, Mars, the Mars mission and, and kind of plans for a Mars colony. So I don't know. I'm super excited about SpaceX. But the mm. technology part is that we are always looking for ways to get better. But mm-hmm. what is better? Better is de- determined by the environment, the society, the people mm. involved and the business. So what is better depends on who's talking, but everybody's mm. looking for better. Uh, for Boeing, mm. Uh, higher profit is better. So, mm. so selling more aeroplanes right. is better. So everybody yeah. has their version of what is better, and we are all struggling to 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 find the 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 fine point what it is. Mm. And whoever mm-hmm. speaks the loudest, and whoever has the most money, probably get to steer the direction of what better means. In my opinion, right. yeah. in old days, better means. Hey, we do better than McDonald Douglas. We do better than uh, Airbus. <laughs> we do better than everybody. That's already better, and we can sell more planes. That's better. And we are doing things as cutting edge as we can make it. Hmm. But in those days, and now we're doing the same thing as cutting edge as we can do it today. So hmm. things have changed a lot, but the idea of making everything better is still the same. It's mm. just different people talk. Different priority right now. Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, McDonald Douglas in the end they got uh, acquired by Boeing. They merged, well, right? Yes, they, they, they merged yeah. with us, and it's a good thing because mm. then there's one less competition to deal with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so to speak, if you can, if you can beat them, own them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, they they, they but, produce a lot of like they produce a lot of military aircraft that in the end Boeing yeah. took yeah. in as well, right? So there's a lot yeah. of value there. Yeah, yeah. F fifteen and yes, such. Yeah. Yes, at that time in the seventies, mm. I almost mm. worked for the F fourteen, F fifteen, F sixteen, F seventeen. I wanted oh, really? to work for them. Yes, I was going to <laughs> move over to Wichita military. Mm. Yes. But I didn't want to leave my family, especially my parents. Mm. So I chose mm. Boeing instead. Okay. So anyway, so it has, everything has to do. See, I keep referring to family, 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 and that's mm. the way mm. it operates. Everything is about family. Mm. Now mm. I still stay in Seattle because my wife, my family, mm. my brother, sister, everybody's still here, so I'm here. That, yeah, that put my priority is is people, people, family, friends. Everything matters to me a lot nowadays. And what are the, yeah, what are some growth growth things or like lessons that you've learned from other people around you? Some of the most impactful ones on your life. The lesson I learned throughout my life is that uh, the people around you really make a difference in your life. They can help you out. They can discourage you from your whatever you want to do different people impact me differently uh my parents taught me how to 
all the right and wrong, what is important in life, give me the character I am today. And my brother and sister, my sibling, they all kind of give me advice. Some of them are very, very good advice. Some of them are okay advice. The people around me, uh, my coworkers, my schoolmates, everybody contribute to some success that I'm having. Uh, me by myself is probably a little bit more difficult to accomplish everything I have accomplished. I think I have to give the credit to my, my parents, my sibling, and my friends, and my wife, Alice. Every one of these people has helped me in, in one way or another to become more successful. When, you know, when I grew up, I thought that you were like, you know, one of the coolest uncles out there, very chill, <laughs> you get a lot of toys. So how, how is it that you're different than the other siblings here in terms of your perspective in life and stuff? Okay, I'm the youngest of 10 children. I've got five sisters and four brothers. And there's 12 of us, including my parents, all together. But because I'm the youngest, I think my parents love me the most and they kept me behind with them when my brother and sister are all moving to a different city, different state and different country. So I kind of grew up like the only child in a way, even though I'm, I have a lot of brother and sister. So I'm a little bit different. <laughs> Plus I get to watch all uh, all of them working very, very hard. And I decided that, ah, oh, maybe having fun is also important too. So, <laughs> so is, is that one of your, uh, you know, major principles that you live by? Like having, yes. having a good time? I, I think living, living, uh, living life to the fullest is, is a good thing, actually. Um, I think I stress on three different things. The first thing I stress on is to live my life as healthy as I can be. That doesn't mean I'm a picture of health, but at least I'm as healthy as I can be. The second thing I live my life is based on the people around me. So when I was my wife, then she's the most important person and I try to get along with her as much as I can. And we, when I'm with Justin mom, uh, my sister Teresa, then I would try to get along with her the best I can. So wherever I happen to be, the people that is next to me or around me, they are important to me, very important. And the third thing I stress on is time. I really, really want to have as much time as I can. And time is very precious. So if you have got this three things accomplished, um, I think you have lived your life to the fullest. Love yeah. that. So, what are some uh, so what are some lessons that you would impart on the younger generation? I think you should find. Uh, I think you find something that you're passionate for, and do whatever you're passionate for, and do it well, and also learn to enjoy life while you're doing it, and. Treasure your time. I, I know young people, they take time for granted. 
whereas the older people says, well, I better do this or else. <laughs> so, <laughs> how do you cope yeah. with stress? You know, how, how do you? Well, I, uh, I exercise. That, that helps a lot. If you exercise, then less stressful. I spend time with people I care for. I try to uh, uh, watch a movie maybe, just, just to enjoy and have a good time. Um, you, you cannot eliminate stress altogether, but I learned to deal with stress uh, in a manner that um, you just have to learn to deal with stress as it comes. Was there anything that shifted in your life in terms of your, your dreams or your goals? The risk I took in retiring, that's, that's a, some kind of risk there. Uh, that shifted my life. Uh, it actually accomplished my goal, actually. That, that's one of my goals, to retire earlier and have more time to myself. So I won't say that, well, it's a risk in a way, but the risk turned out to be pretty okay. Well, I have to thank my wife for supporting me on that. And, and she changed my life, actually. I have to give her a lot of credit because she sticks with me through thick and thin. And mm. um, I actually want to tell you this. I died, literally died seven years ago. Oh, wow. And she helped me out a lot. What do you mean? Recovery. See, my heart, I have a cardiac arrest and my heart stops anywhere from eight and a half minutes to 11 and a half minutes, depending on who you talk to. Everybody has a different stopwatch. So literally, if your heart stops for more than five minutes, you are declared dead, actually. But my friend kept me alive through uh, wow. uh, CPR, CPR, yeah. So I was in a coma for two and a half days. Oh. And the funny thing is, I want to tell you this, this is the most strange thing. During the two and a half days I was in coma, my, my wife is playing music to keep me entertained. Mm. But I couldn't hear the music. I just hear a lot of noise, a lot of noise, and it irritates me a lot, even though she's supposed to entertaining me with the music. Mm. But <laughs> just before I walked up, the only voice or the only sound I hear is her voice. She said this to me while I'm still in the coma. She says, wake up, wake up, honey, wake up for my birthday. And I was thinking, and I still asleep actually, but I heard that what I heard what she said. And I was saying, your birthday is not two and a half days later or two days later. How can it be? But I didn't know I was in a coma for two days. Hmm. So <laughs> just to make her happy, I opened my eyes. And she's so happy to see me open my eyes because I'm out of the coma. Oh wow. Yeah, then she, she, she said this to me. This is, I can't believe this. This is real, as real as ever. She says, well, I'm not sure if he's, he woke up because there's so much noise going on. And 
I'm not sure how his brain is operating. Let's see how, how he operates. So he says, squeeze my, squeeze my hand. And mm. she put her, her, her hand on my, on my left hand and I tried to squeeze it, but I was so tired, I couldn't squeeze it very hard. So I kind of just squeezed a little bit. And she was so happy. Mm. And I'm thinking, why, why is she so happy? <laughs> and I squeezed it, right? So then the next thing she asked me, she still doesn't know if I'm just reacting to the touch. So she said to me, move your left feet. I said, oh God, don't bother me. This, I, I want to sleep actually. So <laughs> she's, I noticed that she's very worried about me. So I move my left feet. Oh my God, she's so happy to see I move my left feet. Oh, she's okay. So anyway, and from there, I realized that she cares for me a lot and mm. changed everything from there onwards. I have to give her my, the credit that I'm here today. Mm. And also, I want to give the credit to Justin Mom, Teresa, my sister, Teresa. Mm. They both stay with me through second scene while I'm in coma. Wow. Wow. That is amazing. I don't think I'll pull through without them at all. Period. And well, it's very important fact, to have people, your family yeah. in, in your corner. Huh? That, that's why I credit a lot of, I give a lot of credit to the people around me because they do mm. make my life different today. One, mm. one way or another. I credit my badminton friend for making me a better player and live a healthier life. I credit my wife sticking with me through thick and thin. I, I credit people around me, period. That, that's hmm. very, very important. Did you, you know, during, it was a near-death experience, right? Yes. <laughs> so did you remember at all, like, what, what it was like when, no. You know, there, there's a lot of people sharing about their experience yes. about this. I wonder if yes. you had some kind of like vision or something. No, no, no. no. I, I, I think, okay, I, I shouldn't say people lying, but mm. I think most of those things that you, you think about is probably in the movie. Mm. I have got no near death experience. All I know mm. is I'm playing badminton and then I pass out. And next thing I woke up to my, my wife's voice. And that's about it. It's, okay. I don't see the tunnel of the light. I don't get to talk to. I don't mm. get to talk to God. And then say, hey, you're not, not time for you. Go back home or something. No, no I don't get any of those. I just mm. know that I'm playing badminton. And then next thing I know, I'm lying in bed. And my wife is trying to wake me up. That's all I know. So no, I, I'm being robbed of the the, the tunnel experience, <laughs> the light experience, the talking to God and going to hell or going to heaven, or all the questions they asked me before I got to heaven or something. No, I don't have any of those. So, but the, the, this is sort of like a turning point as well. I would I would say right because yes. you appreciate more relationships. Yes, with others. that's where I decided that. After I have given a second chance in life, I'm not going to waste this second chance. Mm. I treasure every moment of my second chance. And I have, to, I have to live life to the fullest. I used to care about a lot of little, little things that it's not even important if you think about it. 
if you look at a bigger picture, those little things doesn't really matter. Little things now, like like what, yeah, for example? Yeah, like like oh, uh, how much gas price cost, or how hmm. much uh, you wasted on uh, this or that, or or or, or you know, I I don't do that anymore. I just say, well, I have my second life. I'm going to enjoy my life the way I wanted it, and. Uh, other people's opinion. If they like me, then it's good. If they don't like me, it's it's okay too. I I, I can accept everybody has a different opinion. But I am a little bit more free now, and I credit that to well, you never know when you're <laughs> when you're gonna expire. Because I thought I was the picture of health before I expired. I mm. went to. I went to see my doctor, everything checked out right. I went to do a, a stress test, which is what they do. They put you on a treadmill and they run until you, until you get exhausted. And that turned out to be very, very good. And then a month later, I, I died. So now I know I can die almost any time. And my doctor, uh, three, three heart surgeons, uh, three heart doctor told me the same thing. I said, well, you look really good today, but you can die tomorrow, you can die next week, you can die next month, or you never die, whatever. So I just say, well, today I'm here, I'm gonna enjoy my life and leave it. Tomorrow doesn't really matter to me. So they never really found out what what was wrong? Yes, they did, they did find out. Mm. I have got three arteries in my heart, and um, one of them was slowly, slowly going bad. So I didn't know about it because it's so gradual. The second one, was actually clot at the time I was playing badminton. And that day was the first day I was training for a tournament. I was pushing myself beyond my limit. When that second artery block, I don't have enough oxygen to my heart, I mean, to my, to my, to my brain. So I pass out, they call it cardiac arrest. Mm -hmm. Now the difference between cardiac arrest and heart attack is that cardiac arrest doesn't have side benefit, doesn't have a, it's reversible. All damage are reversible. Heart attack is not so reversible. Mm. But I'm very, very lucky. Given the situation I was in, I came out much, much healthier now because I'm aware of it, that <laughs> I can't take health for granted. Yeah. And that changed my life. That's another one of my turning points. Major, major so turning point. That's a blessing, man, Uncle Huntley. I yeah. think so. I, I think it is actually a good thing. Three things that is very, very good in my life. One is I married Alice. Two is I retired early. Three is that I got a calling that this happened to me. And based on that, I have, that's where I'm today. I, I, I think those three really matter. Hmm. Justin, are you retiring early too? No. I do. <laughs> well, I, I think like Justin I'm, is I'm enjoying. Like, I'm enjoying my work, yeah. Yes, you're enjoying your work. So that could be like a retirement hobby thing that also earn income at the same time. So yeah. it's the best of both worlds. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder more time because I was thinking, I, I know I don't need too much money because I live a very, very simple life and, and that doesn't require a lot of money. So I always want to take more longer vacation to go to Asia, travel a little bit more. 
but Boeing always need me for something important all the time. So they say, no, 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 you cannot, you cannot take too long vacation. You cannot discharge. So I find myself as a very, very restricted. So I decided to uh, stop working or, or retire, so to speak, take early retirement so that I can do whatever I want. So it, it's, it's a good thing if you have the means of supporting yourself mm. and you have the means of keeping your time preoccupied. Enjoying nice. your retirement. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How long have you been here. retired? <laughs> About 20, 20, what, 20, 24 years. Wow, wow, what have you been doing for the last 24 years? Uh, uh, playing badminton. Yeah, playing badminton, hanging out with friends and uh, family. Yes. So, Uncle Henley, you never, you never had the urge to do more. Like, how did you get over there? You know, like a lot of people, they want to work and they, they don't know anything but doing work. And so it's wow. kind of impressive in a way that you could retire very early and just be comfortable with it, you know? Well, I keep myself very busy. I do a lot of sports. I do a lot of uh, friends, family activities, and I have a lot of hobby and interests. So in a way, that's enough to keep me preoccupied. So is this something that you uh, foresee when you, when you decided to retire? No, I, I find that uh, when I was working, I constantly find myself to be not having enough time to do what I want. And when I think I've made enough money, I decided that maybe I can just not make more money and just spend more time doing what I, what I want. So it takes me about a year and a half to actually from the time I decided to retire to actually retire, it takes about a year and a half to make that decision. And then when I first retired, I decided to um, volunteer to run a badminton club. And that takes a lot of my time and focus on running a club. In the early 1990s, uh, badminton is not very popular in Seattle. So it takes a lot of, uh, uh, time and energy to make it popular. It is very popular today. So, what did you do to make it yeah. popular? I ran uh, three tournaments, uh, Washington State tournament every year. Um, the first one I run is in December. It's for the BCD, for amateur players. And it's a lot of fun. And the next one I run is in February. It's called Washington State Close. And that's only within the state of Washington. Not so competitive. And then the last one I run is in May of every year. It's the Washington State Open. And that's very, very competitive. And that draw a lot of interest in badminton. People are coming over from Alaska, Canada, Boston, uh, all over the countries then it become more and more popular and everybody's looking forward to playing a tournament. So now uh, badminton is more and more popular now. Cool. 
All yeah. right. Um, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Justin, yeah, for co-hosting. Thank you. Cool. Yeah, that was a great conversation. All right. Thank you, All right, Justin. Guys. Thank you, Nayako. Yeah, have a good night there. Have a good night. See ya. Well, guys, I hope you learned something from this. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe. I'm your host, Nayako Vijaksono. Thanks for listening.